0: Welcome back to Cyber Contacts with Jonathan Moore, the Chief Information Officer at SpiderOak. I'm Christian Whiten, PR guy and former diplomat. Jonathan, uh, you know, semiconductors are a big part of just the general computing world um, and at the heart of, of the hardware part of cyber, uh, if you will. Um so much of the high tech part of semiconductors may use U.S. tools in its in its design and manufacture, but is actually made in in places like Japan and South Korea, and in particular Taiwan. Taiwan is home to TSMC, uh, which has operations in other countries, but it it's its heart uh, the actual production of the hardware that is so critical to. Uh, computers whether they're uh, relatively small and mobile ones like a phone or what goes into a, a satellite or something even more complex you know comes from taiwan and taiwan is under under threat uh, seemingly at any given point from from china china doesn't seem to go for more than a week without threatening unification with taiwan which is a euphemism for invasion uh, you know, there's a whole diplomatic backstory on that. But uh, are you concerned about this uh, seeming vulnerability in the in the supply chain?
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's definitely an interesting wrinkle. I mean, as you say, in the end, you know, our software is only secure because of the contracts that the hardware provides. And that when you look at, you know, every iPhone out there, you know, and video cards, you know, so much of the compute hardware we look at. Is manufactured in Taiwan by TSMC. Not the not the phones themselves, but those chips, the the high-end chips, the three nanometer five nanometer processes. Um, that's where they're all produced. And so I think that that is an interesting risk, and it's it's interesting to, to sort of ask ourselves what it means that our global supply chain for so computers, you know, for computers and, and you know everything we depend on. Really depends on such a small island. I think it's ninety-five percent of high-tech silicon is produced in Taiwan. So I think that is a really interesting uh, aspect of that, and I, it does play, you know, it does play into this whole, you know, China as a cyber adversary. You know, they have their own attempt at, you know, replicating TSMC, which <laughs> essentially I think it's ECC that they they have or EEC. You know, I can't remember off the top of my head, but they are years behind. Um, their uh, uh, TSMC and, and really the Western world in general, in terms of their ability to produce fabs domestically, And so that creates an additional tension. Both protecting Taiwan from invasion and also making it a bigger threat. Protecting them that, you know, China risks their own supply if they were to invade Taiwan, and the world depends on it. So that creates, you know, more incentive for the rest of the world to help defend Taiwan, but it also creates more of an incentive for China to try and acquire those capabilities. Hmm. You mentioned China's attempt
0: to uh, at least catch up with or or surmount TSMC. We've heard so much in in recent years about Huawei, and uh, in Washington, uh, the previous administration, though it's been continued by this administration, has pursued export controls uh, aimed at at really stopping Huawei from getting cutting edge or or being at the cutting edge of semiconductor. Um, technology, but is it is it safe to say, as far as we know, that Huawei is is not a player at this at this forefront? That they are in fact behind.
1: So, yeah, well, it's, I mean, Huawei is not does, doesn't produce the chips. They don't have a fab. There there are there is this there are domestic fabs, but they are fairly far behind. And those those export controls around that technology aren't new. Isn't been it? It affecting them. I mean, they you know you need these high precision optics that largely Carl Zeiss produces and those imports of those have been uh uh restricted and there's all sorts of the supply chain for these you know small feature size semiconductors is, is very deep and complex and there's a lot of the knowledge um is missing domestically in China they're trying to catch up um but they are still you know probably back around 20 40 nanometers their their highest process uh their most fine process processes sorry i can't say those words <laughs> the 20, you know, 20 to 40 nanometer is as uh, high-resolution process as they can manage.
0: And uh, for those who aren't experts on semiconductors, when you talk about 40 nanometers or 20, and I understand that TSMC or others at, at that leading edge can go down into the single digits of of nanometers, what
1: what are you talking about? Is that the physical design of the chip? Yeah, so that so so chips are produced with a photolithographic process in the same way you know prints of photographies have been traditionally. I mean, today with digital photography we do it differently, but when you take a picture of film, it produces a negative, and you expose that negative on a, a substrate, and the same is done to produce chips to produce the patterning on the chips that define where the individual transistors are. And so when we talk about the you know nanometer process, we're talking about how small is the smallest feature that can appear on the chip? How small is the smallest transistor you can produce? And so we talk about like a five nanometer process. That means the smallest transistors are um, five nanometers across. Uh, so the And the impact of that is that the smaller the feature size you can get, the more power efficient, the, the more transistors you can get per surface area and the more power efficient those transistors become. And so... Uh, You're you're both able to increase density, which these days is used for concurrent execution or vector processing, which is processing the same instruction over lots of values, which is used in machine learning a lot and graphics, Um, uh, as well as you're getting more of these, as well as you're getting them each instruction or each sort of change of gate for less power. So that lets you get more, do more things with less each time you step the process down.
0: You hear about, uh, is it Moore's Law? I don't think it's named after
1: you. I uh, just to no. <laughs> It is it's just a glimpse. It it is named um, after uh, the co-founder of Intel.
0: Ah, well, okay. Someone one who had a little, little marketing strength there. Um, but the idea is that computing strength increases exponentially. I don't know if that's actually true, and
1: we have been more linear in oh, a true no, mathematical
0: no. sense. But
1: oh no, it, it definitely is exponential. And what what? Hmm. His Moore's law, so Moore's law is often misrepresented as computers get twice as fast or twice as powerful. But what he actually observed is the number of trans- transistors and their density has, was doubling roughly. I think originally, actually, I think he said 24 months, and we sort of shortened that to 18. Um, but roughly that's actually true and it, and it, it applies not just on the scale of of individual things but also for our very large supercomputers. if you look at the um, the performance of you know so, so so it is about the density, but it also generally applies to performance since there's a pretty tight relationship between those two, although performance isn't exactly what he said it's about density of transistors on chips and the number. But- of... Right, Transition. and the reason
0: I bring it up is as as you <laughs> as you approach zero nanometers, I assume sort of like approaching the speed of light, you you actually kind of uh, become it, it was it infinitely dense, heavy, massive. Um, you <laughs> well, presumably yeah. cannot go to less than zero nanometers. Is there actually going well, to be a a reduction here? Yeah, or at so, least the so, decrease in the
1: increase. So so well with with silicon based um, semiconductors, yes, I think a. Silicon atom is roughly 0.2 nanometers across, um, which, is, which is astounding if you think about that. That means our modern process, a three nanometer process, that actually means what that is, we're putting uh, five times a 15, uh, 15 silicon atoms is the size of a transistor that we're using in the very most modern processes or next generation processes today. So we are reaching, approaching that limit where silicon transistors won't get smaller. Uh, But but that isn't really the end of the story because it's it is in reality a little more complicated because there's there's actually two things you can look at as feature size and feature density. So it might be that your gates are only three nanometers across, but they're 100 nanometers apart. So it's not really the end. It's not it's not near the end of the road yet. We actually have quite a bit to go um, as we increase density by means other than reducing feature size.
0: Uh You now, stepping back to tsMC, uh, there was sort of big news that, that they were going, and this actually, I think preceded some of the supply chain supply chain crunch we're seeing with semiconductors that they're going to build a plant, a fab if i'm if I'm uh, using the right terminology and have my facts right in Arizona. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it would be their top of the line stuff. Well, um, it, it, it,
1: they're They're basically replicating their top of the line Taiwanese fab in Arizona. Um, you know, to sort of serve two purposes. One is, you know, to support US government customers who are concerned with supply chain security, and, you know, that they're getting the chips they intend to get. And also, you know, to be closer to their biggest customers like Apple and NVIDIA, which are domestic US companies, um, so that the the chips are being produced near the companies that are consuming them. And that's not that's not just about security and, and supply chain. That also makes a lot of difference for these companies that they're developing new products. Instead of having to fly engineers, you know, across the Pacific to when they're to get the development and work on integration, they're able to just, you know, fly them to Arizona. And it, it really can help those companies a lot with shortening their development and product cycles, getting into the market more quickly.
0: Yeah, that would be helpful now if it were up and running since Taiwan has a fourteen day quarantine <laughs> still. Yeah, no, certainly.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly we need more resiliency in the the supply chain. So we're seeing that two ways, right? We're seeing that at TSMC um, and also Samsung is another important player in this. uh, Building more capabilities globally, so we're not concentrating it in some very small areas. And Intel is trying to get back in the game. Intel, for decades, was 24 months ahead in process of everybody else. And about 10 years ago, they stumbled and they've had an extremely hard time being you know they, they they're behind tsmc and samsung now um they believe they're going to catch up in the next few years um, but they and they are investing a lot in fabs i mean by me here in oregon they're about to open next year a very a new large fab for like seven nanometer processes um, and they're building them another one in arizona and they're building in europe and so i think there's sort of been a wake-up call to realize that um there was a sort of supply chain issue with uh, allowing most of our um, semiconductors to be produced in one part of the world. Um, and we're sort of resolving, but this isn't new to the industry, right? Uh, in the 90s, there was a shortage on RAM and semiconductors in general, which was caused by a fire at the single plant, which produced like 90 something percent of the epoxy used to package semiconductors. So I think it's, these supply chain risks aren't new. This is a this is a, a new iteration of it, um, but it's a, it's really hard. You know, economies of scale push us to fragility. You know, so mm-hmm. you know, and, and we've seen that in other industries, right? Like how we allowed China to get a dominance on rare earth mineral mineral extraction, where we used to do in the U S. The U S. actually has lots of rare earth. Uh, metals rare metals aren't actually rare. That's right, but, they're not rare. Just I uh, guess a little bit uh, <laughs> uh,
0: dirty, if you will, to mill and, and produce. I guess.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so we found the economics and uh, politics of letting China do it better, but we lost domestic knowledge of how to do it. So, it's it's it all it's all part of the, the same cycle. And I think that there's an interesting, you know, you know, question there, which is how can we build these how Can we build economies and systems that are more resilient to the sort of natural concentration and fragility? And I think that that applies to to all sorts of security. I mean, we see that today, like we saw today, a you know, know, sometimes there are surprising bugs. There was today an announcement of a bug in the NSS cryptographic library, which is developed by Mozilla but used in a lot of different places for a lot of different things. That's a critical vulnerability that has sat there for, I think it said it was. 2012 that it was introduced and just never noticed any the, the more concentration you have the you know the the more fragility you built in you build in all
0: right i had another question about supply chain but before that can we just step back uh to the intel situation 10 years ago um did they just have sort of an apple 3 or apple lisa moment where they went down the wrong path and then backed up and got on the right path
1: or uh uh, I, mean, uh, I mean, you can argue a lot of different things. I mean, it could just be they 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 pushed too hard. They pushed for they they were trying to do too much at once. Um, but I think there's also a reasonable theory that the challenge was that, that was the first time um, it was happened around the time same time Andy Grove stepped down. It was the first time in Intel's history that it hasn't been run by an engineer. It's been run by a business person, and I think there is precedent to see that in a lot of industries. Unfortunately, Boeing seems to be a victim of this as well. When you And in a a innovation-driven technology company, when you install somebody in charge of the company that doesn't come from that engineering background, it doesn't have a history in the company, that you often risk not understanding what's really important. Because in these technical endeavors, it can be very subtle to understand what matters and what doesn't.
0: Yes, as an MBA, I can tell you, people like me should probably not be running a semiconductor company. <laughs> you know, I think of Lindsay Nagel, the stereotypical business person from The Simpsons, and Lisa at one point asks her what she produces, and without skipping a beat, she says, Synergy. Um, <laughs> going back to the supply chain, you mentioned Samsung, so a South Korean company, there's Kyoxia in Japan, formerly Toshiba Memory. Um, you know, with the export controls, I gather one way the U.S. government was able to prevent sales, not of all of all uh, chips technology to Huawei, but of certain ones was because um, we didn't want to just constrain our manufacturers and allow Japanese and Taiwanese and Singaporean and others um, to export. So we said if there was any U.S. tool in your design or production line, then our export controls applied to you. Um, a lot of Americans would probably be surprised to know that the, the leading edge of semiconductors is in Taiwan and these other countries. Uh, do you think that is partly that it was just a, a view that semiconductors actually weren't the edge of high tech, that it was software, that it was social media, the actual sort of consumer end of technology? Um, any guesses on uh, or, or theories on why we uh, either fell behind or at least ceased to be the leader? <laughs> Same thing,
1: I suppose. I mean, uh, no, I think it's just, it was honestly just really good work. So, so TMN's, TSMC was the first pure foundry play under the theory that if you focus on only one thing, you can do better at it than everybody else. And it seems like it worked. I mean, they they are in their position because they worked really hard to get there, have done really great R and D, and just have innovated for like I mean, it's I think it was founded in 1995. So this is not. They didn't show up the next day. This has been a a long haul effort for them, and when they founded. You know, the idea of a, you know, pure fab, you know, pure foundry company, country, sorry, company was not considered to be a good idea, right? Is that everybody who had products had fabs. And it was as the complexity of the fabrication process increased that more and more, more companies thought, hey, you know, maybe I don't need to be a fab. And you even see like certain pure IP companies like Arm, you know, Arm Designs the instruction set and designs reference, uh, and good, not just reference, but, but designs, you know, inter- integrated circuit design or chip designs, but they don't produce or sell any chips. They, they license IP only. So if you see that it's sort of diversifying the other end, it's almost kind of just the, the market maturing, right? We started with new technology and vertically integrated players. And then over time we're seeing the market mature and people specialize and do things. And even Intel has sort of accepted they need to. Uh, offer their process to other people too to be able to really grow. Because if you're just doing it for yourself, you're you're at risk of if your product becomes unpopular, all of a sudden your fabs are not you know not really utilized. Where if you sell to the entire market, you've always got a chance to to pick up other slack if your internal dry, if your internal demand drops.
0: All right, that's so interesting with uh, just TSMC and the specialization that sort of flies in the face of so much of Silicon Valley, where you have these giants and you have small companies that generally you get consumed by giants who are doing the opposite of, of what the convention, the, you know, coming out of the 70s, the movement in business was to focus on a core competency and big conglomerates, especially in the United States. It was different in other countries with immature capital markets because you'd have a giant company and that was essentially an internal capital market. But in the U.S., uh, with the exception of General Electric, which later would run into trouble, you know, the idea was focus, 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 and that that switched, especially when you talk about uh, Google and on the, uh, I suppose, uh, Facebook and, and some of the others. Um, so that is a a a big um, a, a difference in business that seems to have paid off in that uh, in that one instance. Um, you know, you hear a lot switching topics a little bit here, but sticking with semiconductors about quantum computing or just you know the general state with with supercomputers is is software a big part of that, or is that as we've been discussing so far really semiconductor dependent and and being on that cutting edge
1: um, for for quantum computing? you mean, for, I mean, well, quantum yeah, for, computing... for
0: making them and for making them good.
1: Well, they don't work yet. Right, mm-hmm. so the, the physics hasn't been <laughs> overcome. So, so there is a lot of, I mean, there there is certainly research into the software and what you would run on it. Um, but in terms of quantum computers and software, we don't really have interesting-sized quantum computers yet. So there's not a great demand for the software yet. There is, on the flip side, in security and cryptography, there is a large software push for developing what's called post-quantum cryptography, um, which is crypt- Cryptography, which can survive the existence of a large quantum computer. Because mm-hmm. the asymmetric cryptography algorithm is of public key cryptography that's used for digital signatures and um, you know, setting up the security of things like TLS depends on these algorithms which are no longer secure if quantum computers ever really come to fruition. So there's a large amount of work in developing replacements for those that are secure even in the face of quantum computers. That so, in, in many ways, in the the work in software around quantum computing is all about how to do classical, we do things on classical computers that uh, sort of negate some of the power of quantum computing.
0: Interesting. So just applying that to sort of a practical reality, uh, let's say instead of the two of us talking as we are on what I assume is probably something that's 128-bit encrypted, uh, the same public key infrastructure you described before. Let's say you were the US ambassador to China, and I'm sitting in Washington, and we're having a discussion, and we think it's secure. And the Chinese can't uh, crack that currently, but they can record the conversation if they steal the file. Let's say they just hold that, and 10, 5, 15, whatever, how many years from now, if quantum computers really work, uh, will and, and so that's not something that's using post-quantum encryption. Does that mean they can sort of go back to these old files and, and
1: crack them? Maybe? No, but yeah, potentially, yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so, so the way that, you know, this conversation used public key cryptography to initiate um, the security of it, and then it uses a symmetric algorithm after that fact, um, which is probably secure against quantum cryptography. Well, it depends on how big it is. Uh, the, the symmetric algorithm needs a modest increase in key size be to be secure where the asymmetric algorithms are not practically secure even with much larger key sizes uh, if the quantum computers get big enough so so yeah so i think that that is real concern i mean we don't know if quantum computers are going to appear tomorrow or in 10 years or in 30 years or never um Mm -hmm. you know it's looking like the answer is not never there's some pretty good (laughs) uh, i think it's i wouldn't bet never if i was a betting man but um You know, it is, we don't really know where that horizon is, but there's still some really deep fundamental challenges in that field.
0: Going back, let's say I am uh, an adversarial government, China, Russia, or a fictitious government. Um, Given what we've been discussing here, if I do want to uh, either wage a cyber assault or steal information um, in the cyber realm, Uh, Do I focus on hardware? Do I focus on trying, uh, you know, becoming a Huawei or or the other company cited that was trying to challenge TSMC and slip in uh, ICs that have unexplained structures that can actually, you know, send me data? Or do I focus on
1: on software? Or do I have to do both? Well, I mean, why wouldn't you do both? It's pretty cheap, right? You know, I, I, I I would say do both, right? And and it's because why not? Like. You know, we we, at one level, you know, we're like amazed that if I have if I find a zero day in a popular product like, say, iOS or something like that, that might be worth a million dollars. Right. But, you know, a cruise missile is worth like 20 million dollars. So, you know, (laughs) saying that an exploit is worth a handful of million dollars when we blow up all sorts of things that are worth a whole lot more than that. I, I think from a military standpoint and from a sort of state power standpoint, those are cheap, right? So, and the thing about hardware vulnerabilities that are great is that, you know, they can't just be patched the next software update. Somebody's got to actually go replace a piece of hardware. And if that's like embedded out somewhere in the field, that might be difficult. You know, it's certainly not as fast as downloading the latest patch. So I, I think there is a lot of that advantage to being, uh, you know, having your vulnerability in the hardware, you know, but you know, the software is good too. It's just so easy picking. So I, I think both are at risk. And I think the real thing here, the the concern is that actually, that we're not paying attention to this hardware supply chain as, as an industry, and that it is so fragile. Like if you want to know, is the supply chain vulnerable? Absolutely. We know this because counterfeits get into the supply chain constantly. If you're buying, you know, parts, elect, you know, ICs, to put into your electronics as a manufacturer, one of your big challenges is that a non trivial percentage of the ICCs you receive will be counterfeit and don't function correctly. So, you know, it's not a question of is the supply chain vulnerable? We know it's vulnerable because of fraud. The question is, is what is the adversary doing? And uh,
0: with what we're talking about, that vulnerability is that the components of integrated circuits or the or or what they are combined into um, the system that controls voice on your phone, for example, I don't know, that those come from disparate companies, those aren't all coming straight from uh, TSMC or Intel into your government computer or the phone in my hand that you don't really know that, you know, as with globalization, just in time inventory, all of these Um, things that were so great until they weren't. (laughs) Is that what it is that you have just so many, so many moving parts, it's hard to know what they're all doing.
1: Exactly. And it's like, you know, we're not seeing a lot of counterfeit parts from say like Intel or, or, you know, Samsung, we're not, it's not these large chips. It's further down the supply chain. You see them, Like, You know, microchip produces a ton of ICs that are uh, important for various things. Uh, Like a very common one you find everywhere. is something that converts from, uh, serial interface to USB interface, and you see these all over the industry because you've got all these random cheap USB gadgets, and they don't really want to implement USB on their side, so they buy this microchip part, lets them just connect like a you know RS their old RS 232 kind of protocol, um and it interfaces it with USB magically for you, or there's you know memory controllers, or all sorts of things, and you know the the risk is though is that that you know your computer you think of the computer as the cpu right the cpu is the heart of your computer and that's where computation happens but modern computers and electronics are actually whole networks of different components and all sorts of there's tons of microprocessors in your computer you know your your flash drive you know has you know has a multi-core computer you know processor in it itself that's a fairly fast computer that's you know, probably competitive with mid-range crones from a few years ago. So, you know, you every there's computers everywhere, and you worry about what happens when the adversary takes control of that, and that's a root, and now they're on the network that is your computer. And maybe they don't have right there, they can't perform their attack, but they can reach, they can use that to bootstrap and attack other parts of the system, repeat, uh, and repeatedly get their their thing. So they they know a vulnerability in another part of the system, they get resident on that thing. That that's backdoored or they they compromised and now each time you boot up they reinfect the computer so it doesn't matter how many times you reinstall they're still present. Hmm.
0: That's very interesting, especially when you think about how many certainly at the consumer level, uh, you know, iPhone on the Mac side, iPhones and, and and Macs except for maybe one at the very high end, which is made in Texas, all of them are are made in China. Um yeah. so the the opportunities for mischief somewhere along the lines. It's not like you would need a diabolical scheme that involves um, you know, someone compromised at the very top. It could just be any yeah. part
1: of a very long chain. And the vulnerability could be subtle, right? You know, like they don't necessarily the vulnerability might be like, oh, we introduced this component which functions correctly but happens, you know, but that happens to be way out of spec for its um emissions like it's secondary emissions and it's usable for the adversary to listen in to what's going on the phone or to recover a secret key from the phone using a nearby radio antenna or maybe it can affect the random number generator in the computer and random numbers are imp- good random numbers are incredibly important for security and if those random numbers are um you know are compromised by the adversary and not truly random you know a lot of our cryptography falls apart I mean, it's it's and it's the thing is, is a lot of these things we're talking about, like, you know, they're hard not to do by accident. Like, you know, anything in your computer that has a coil in it is is functionally a microphone and anything that you have an oscillator in is functionally a radio transmitter. And it's actually work for these companies to stop those from, you know, from accidentally transmitting things like it's, you know, we keep discovering like, oh, oops because of you know power fluctuation noise caused by the op amp for your microphone the operational amplifier the amplifier for your microphone on your laptop it's creating noise on the power bus that's actually causing modulation subtle modulations below the spec but still receivable in your bluetooth transmission and so your bluetooth radio is in fact transmitting your microphone you know to your whole neighborhood so uh, these are these are hard things to avoid. So now we've got these hard things to not do by accident, and so all the adversary has to do is accident, you know, accidentally, you know, insert this bug in something, and it will still function correctly, but it'll just have this other bad behavior you don't want. Hmm.
0: And presumably, also it could also just shut things down given a certain
1: command or or event. Yeah. Certainly, if it, it can receive data from the network, if it's like some chip that's at the front end of your Ethernet port or Wi-Fi. You know, you could potentially, maybe you could send that that global kill command. It's 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 a little harder to to receive that data, because you got to have that receive path. And you know, are you on the IP thing? But there are areas where it's true. Like you know, there there's all sorts of we have all sorts of things like these management engines and servers and stuff like that that have you know see data right at the edge and you know can receive packets potentially over the internet or at least from the local network. So there's certainly Certainly at a risk there. You mentioned
0: earlier the importance of uh, random numbers. The Rand Corporation put out a book in 1955. Was just reminded of this, and it's uh, a million random digits with 100,000 normal deviates. Hmm. I thought that was derivatives, but deviates. Hmm. Um, that must be the most boring book ever, ever. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> ever produced, but apparently it was it was very useful at the time. with well, it's uh, very,
1: very exciting if you need, if you're you need good, uh, good good randomness to put in your statistical model, which is a lot what right. that was used for, right? Is that you need you need to make sure you're not biasing your statistical models with with bad uh, with bad randomness.
0: Right, um, it's easier than a, a garbage can filled with ping pong balls with numbers on them, something
1: like that. But but randomness is is fundamentally important to cryptography. Right. We have to generate a lot of random numbers because, you know, essentially, to make it simple, we use the same key over and over and over again, message after message after message. But the security of that falls apart if we really use the same key. So what we have to do is include a new random number with each message to randomize that key. So that that random number is not secret. The result of how it's com- the result of that the output of combining it with that key is secret. But if those random numbers start to become predictable, um, certain classes of cryptography fall apart very very quickly and in fact can reveal the ce- you can look at the output and reveal the secret key um, that was combined with that random number so randomness is really important and is often gotten wrong uh, lots of breaks in cryptography are actually breaks of the random number generator and attacks against it you know it where was the um, juniper VPN pro- uh, product ha- was backdoored and the way it was backdoored, was simply by introducing um, a a vulnerability in the random number generator that a certain adversary could use to know what the input seed to that random number generator is and predict all feature numbers from it. So it's this is there's a long history of of using bugs in ra- random number generators as attacks and attacking them directly.
0: Interesting and and sort of failures with random numbers were how. But uh we cracked the Soviets Venona or the Nazis Enigma. those those
1: were those were things that weren't weren't quite as random as they should have been. Yeah, well that was more the permutations weren't really complex enough. But where we did mm-hmm. where random numbers did actually cause a failure is these uh number there was a number station in um Havana or or somewhere in Cuba that uh they had a bad random number generator. So this is a number station is a, a station that, uh, that transmits on shortwave radio and is used by um, SPN, you know, spies essentially to receive messages. So you can get a shortwave radio pretty much anywhere in the world, the waves travel very far. So it's a very easy way to send messages to your field agents in ways. that's very hard to, to uncover them, who, who those agents are. And they had a bug, which is what, when they transmitted, Actual messages they had good randomness. When they were all, when they didn't have a message to send, their random number generator was broken, and they sent the same message constantly. And so <laughs> we were <was> able well. <laughs> so so we were able to determine when a real message was sent or not. And so we we're actually able to use that to confirm several you know sleeper cell deep undercover r- Russian spies in the U.S. by Seeing that, oh, when they're traveling and not at home, it never transmits uh, the actual. Ra- it always transmits the not random message. And when they're and when they're not random messages, they're always somewhere they could be listening to that. And we were able to actually, you know, can prove to ourselves that our suspicions about these spies were correct, and eventually arrest them based on a bad random number generator in uh, Cuba.
0: <laughs> it's amazing cat-and-mouse game. Um, you know, to round out the, uh, the episode here, we're circling back to semiconductors. Uh, we've said a lot of scary things about the risks, but one thing we have going for us, again, yeah, this is sort of a, a dangerous part of the world. When you think about Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore's farther south, um, but would, would probably be involved in a conflict just since it's right uh, next to the Malacca Strait, a uh, key, key passageway in the region. Uh, on the other hand one way to look at it is is all of those countries are US allies uh seem to be susceptible to US export controls um are are linked closely with our technology companies so if you do an us versus them calculation if 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 you put those on the american side of the ledger versus china uh, maybe russia um does that does that give
1: you at least some comfort well i i don't know that it does right yeah. i mean they may uh, the, they may all be you know currently aligned with us but it doesn't mean that we're you know adequately you know securing our access to that technology in the case of you know conflict or disaster or political winds changing and you know for so many of these you know other components that are easier to counterfeit in various ways and some of the fairly high end ones could be counterfeited because you can acquire the bare silicon and then backdoor the the silicon by the chip by adding extra silicon to the package. So you don't actually always have to be able to produce the thing you're backdooring. But because the supply chains are so complex and so hard to secure for how these things actually end up in the devices, I'm not sure it really helps. You know, and I think that the general influence that our adversaries have over those those uh, markets Even if they're not aligned, if the interests aren't aligned there right now, I don't know that it actually makes me feel a whole lot better.
0: Right. Certainly. Certainly. Yes. A lot of a lot of risk and variable involved. Yeah, Uh, it could be it could be worse. Right. It could be worse, (laughs) but it doesn't
1: make me feel good.
0: Right, right. A mixed bag. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Cyber Context with Jonathan Moore, the CIO of SpiderOak. I'm Christian White. And if you like what you heard, please follow us on whichever podcast catalog you're using so you won't miss an episode. We'll be back again soon. Thanks.